Turning tonight in the Word of God to the book of Matthew, uh, the chapter 16. Matthew and the chapter 16. And we'll start reading at verse 13. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, the Dobbert Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him, began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou art an offense unto me. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels. Then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here, but shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming 
in his kingdom. Amen. We know the Lord Himself will add His blessing to the reading of His Word. We're looking at, again, the commendations of Christ, number 7, this time around, principally verse 13 through 25 of Matthew, the chapter we have read, chapter 16. We'll bow in a further word of prayer, please. Heavenly Father, as we come to Thy Word, we pray that Thy presence will be real. We pray that Thy Word will be rich. We ask that our ears will be open and that our heart will be touched. Lord, come and do great, great honor unto the Christ of Calvary in Jesus' name and to His glory we pray. Amen. So, again, looking at a word of commendation, and it brings us in this instance to a very significant passage in God's Word. Matthew 16, verse 13 through 25, and the situation is this. Christ and His disciples, they're up at Caesarea Philippi, about 25 miles or 46 kilometers northeast of the Sea of Galilee. So, in distinction to Caesarea, down below Tyre and Sidon and on the Mediterranean coast and a Roman enclave for a while and a seat of Jewish power as well with Herod's heavily involved there. Not there, but up beyond that little lake of Galilee, our Savior is with those disciples. He's in an area that's largely a non-Jewish area. He's surrounded by any amount of idols and false gods. In fact, if he looked around and the disciples would have seen it on the way in, they would have noticed the place is just scattered here with temples of the ancient Syrian Baal worship. Again, hard by Caesarea Philippi, where they were, there was a hill that rose, significant hill, and it had a deep cavern. And in that cavern, people claim that was the birthplace, you know, of the great god of nature called Pan, false god, of course. And in Caesarea Philippi itself, there was a very impressive temple constructed out of white marble, and it was celebrating the supposed Godhead of Caesar. Now, why did our Lord Jesus choose this place? Because He's going the way He did in John chapter 4. He must needs go through Samaria. And He must needs go to Caesarea Philippi. And it's as though he gets right into the amphitheater of false gods and heathen deities, and he's setting himself up against them, and he's challenging all the religions of the world with all of their history and their background and their splendor and their followers, and he's calling in his men, compare and contrast. See what is real and what is false. And he's expecting here that the verdict will be given in his favor, and of course it was. 
Our first major point tonight concerns confession. Confession. There's a question, very important question that arises here. And if we look at verse 13 and 14, we're going to pick that up. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Why was our Lord interested in that? Why did He pose this particular question? It wasn't that He didn't know what others were thinking about Him, that some were thinking, well, He's Elijah or Jeremiah, or He's one of the prophets. He knew all of that. John 2, He knew what was in man. He knew their inmost thoughts. On her many occasions that He revealed that when people who hadn't opened their mouths, Jesus told them what they were thinking in their minds, to their consternation and to their total shock. So, He's not throwing out a question here, who do men think, say that I am, because He doesn't know what they're thinking and doesn't know what they're saying, but He's bringing an expression teasing it out of the hearts of His disciples so that He can reveal Himself to them. The reply comes in, in verse 14. But you'll see in the answers that they give to Him as to what men were considering Him to be, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, just somebody else out of the line of the prophets, whoever that might be, they're all underestimating our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they're willing to give Him a measure of respect and honor and tribute and a little bit of praise, but they fall far short of honoring who He really is. And our world is full of people like that today. Even in those religions, that claim a place of some kind and shape for Him. They underestimate our Lord Jesus Christ in a most significant way. A wonderful man, moral teacher, tremendous guide, all of his maxims, they were beautiful. Think of the Sermon on the Mount. Well, those that say that don't really know where the Sermon on the Mount takes them because they haven't read beyond the opening verses in Matthew chapter 5, they haven't got to Matthew 7. Or is He God? That's the question. And that is what our Lord is bringing to the fore right now. We've just sung a hymn by John Newton, What Think Ye of Christ is the Test? to try both your state and your scheme. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of Him. And if you get this wrong, who He is, everything else is going to be wrong. Cannot be right. What we think of Christ will determine what we do with Him. You can check it out in Matthew 27, 22 for an example of that. And what we think of Christ, determining what we will do with Him, what we do with Him, that will determine what He does with us. And that, of course, is the key thing. 
And you can check it out in John 8 and 24. So we have the question, who do men say that I am? We have the answer as well. And Peter comes in with a quite brilliant answer. When in verse 16 he says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's always seems to be a step ahead of all the other disciples. Maybe they're appointed spokesman, but certainly never afraid to express himself and do that on their behalf. The Son of the living God, maybe the adjective living here, included this contrast, given the place where he is. I am the one true God. Look at all of these fallen, foul, broken, hopeless heathen deities all around me. Look at what people are jumping up and down with excitement about and prostrating themselves before and emptying out their purses and everything else in service to. It's all false. They're dead. But I am the Son, as Peter says correctly, of the living God. Now, what Peter is doing here, and he's very sure about it, He knows full well what the crowd have been thinking. He knows what they've been saying. He knows their scant regard for the real person that Jesus was. And so he's telling them he's not only the Messiah, and that's wonderful, but he is God himself. So that's the claim. He's the Son of the living God. He's not man who has become God, but He is God who became man, as we read in John 1 and 1 and and 14 as well. In the beginning was the Word, so we have eternal being in there. The Word was with God, that distinct personality of His. The Word was God, His essential deity. The Word became flesh, His incarnation, and His humanity. All of that in the claim that Peter makes. And the confirmation. What does our Lord say in response to this? Well, in verse 17, He makes it very plain that He agrees with what Peter has said. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjunum, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. In other words, He's saying, You were exactly right, Peter. So many around me are getting it wrong. The claim, the confirmation. And the crux of it is this. Nobody will ever understand the true nature of our Lord unless God reveals it to them. Flesh and blood. What does flesh and blood do? It does what they were doing in Caesarea Philippi. It falls down before statues. It exalts things that aren't God at all. And it becomes subservient to them and yields allegiance to foolish things and empty things and hopeless things. And our society as a whole is running after a mirage. Vessels that can contain any water capsizing in ruin, 
What wreckage we have. And what Peter said was a revelation straight from God Himself, not from man. Jesus reveals here to Peter, Peter, you're speaking by divine inspiration. Even if Peter didn't know it at the time. And here, Peter is genuinely blessed, both by the insight that he had himself here that was given to him, and also how it came to him, straight from God the Father. He's an echo chamber of God's thoughts in heaven. The Father which is in heaven has revealed it to you. And that's what we need to be in this earth because that's the only answer for a society that is empty, that we become an echo chamber of heaven and bring the message of God to broken hearts that are trusting and trying everything under the sun. The fact of the matter is, the Jews in that day and still to today could not see Jesus as their Messiah because a veil was over their eyes. We're told about that in the writings of Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to 15. The Gentiles, they're in the dark as well, and they'll stay in the dark, both Jew and Gentile, until their eyes are opened by the Holy Spirit. It isn't flesh and blood. That's not the pathway. My Father has revealed it unto you. And that's what the world needs today, to hear God speak. In the middle of their emptiness, in the middle of their futility, in the middle of, well, they're just giving up on what's happening in life. Lord, speak to my heart. That will allow us with this revelation from God to say with Thomas, whenever we're asked the question, who do you say that I am? My Lord and my God. John 20 and verse 28. So, we have had, first of all, the thought of confession here. We come secondly to construction. Construction. Where are we looking? Verse 17 and verse 18 in Matthew chapter 16. Very familiar verses, no doubt. 17 and 18. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So we're in the realm of construction here. And let's get it right. Christ is the foundation. Christ is the builder. He's the architect. He is the preserver of His church. And we have all of that right in here. He's the foundation of the church, verse 18. If Jesus had meant to say, as some people claim He did, that He's going to build His church on Peter, and the name Peter is a pebble, a small stone, why didn't he say very clearly, on you, Peter, I am going to build my church? Matthew, in this passage, uses two words. 
making it clear to all generations, Jesus didn't say that he would build his church on Peter here. And those two words are, you are Peter, Petros, a stone, and on this rock, Petra, which means a large headland, I will build my church. Can you imagine any structure being built on a pebble? Wouldn't be too sound of a foundation. Be wobbling all over the place. Could never balance. But you can build a structure on a headland. And that's what our Lord is saying here. And when you, as you have to do in Scripture, compare Scripture with Scripture, if there's a difficult passage, if it seems to have a shade of meaning that you're wondering, well, that doesn't seem to square with the rest of Scripture. You read the rest of Scripture, and you'll find this. Christ Jesus, He is the great foundation. And not only that, the Bible tells us there can be no other foundation other than Him. So, Peter cannot therefore be the foundation of the church. 1 Corinthians 3.11, 1 Peter 2, the verse 4 to 6. How significant is that? Because Peter himself, in 1 Peter 2, verse 4 to 6, by his own testimony, did not see himself remotely as being that rock on which the church was founded, because he tells us there, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone and that we, the rest of us, Peter included, are just living stones put on top of, built upon the chief cornerstone. He was just one of the first stones among many to be added to the church. Jesus is also not only the foundation, but the builder of the church. And he says, now I'm going to leave it to you, Peter, I'm giving you a master plan. You're going to build the church. No, he doesn't say that. I will build my church. I will build my church. It's his. And he is building it, and he will complete it. What he begins, he always finishes. And the statement of Christ here is a claim of ownership. It is my church. It belongs to him. And this was also and this is interesting in the context here, this was also a claim to deity. Because he describes the church as his community, it's mine. He's saying he's God. Even in that statement, I will build my church. The builder and also the preserver of the church, he said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now they're going to try, and they're going to build their defenses, and they're going to fortify the place, and they're going to take captives, and they're going to do what Hamas has done, and put them underground, and try to ferret them away beyond the reach of rescue. But Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. They're going to come crashing down. And the church of Christ is coming in to take all of those for whom the Savior shed His blood on Calvary. Not one of them will be lost. Now, that's a valuable promise, is it not? In dark times, in discouraging times, when things aren't quite 
as melodious and therefore they're discordant times and we're getting terrible sounds coming out and maybe wheels and cries when there should be songs. And we're right in the middle of this warfare that Jesus is here talking about. We're right in the middle of it today. The devil is on the warpath, but here's the Lord's Word guaranteeing the security of His church. John 10, 28, 29 comes to mind as well. You'll not pluck them out of my hand. So we have confession and construction. And we have commission here as well, commission. Those servants of His, the disciples, are given a commission to speak authoritatively in the Lord's name. Look at verse 19 of Matthew chapter 16. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The first part of that verse has a historical reference, a historical reference. And what it simply means is this. Peter will open the door, and he did to the Jews that were assembled in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. They were Jews, proselytes from all the nations under heaven, and they had converged on Jerusalem. And to those Jews, Peter sounded out the word of the gospel, and he opened the door of grace to them. And then by the time we get to Acts chapter 10, we find that he's opening the door of grace further, not just to the Jew, but to the Gentiles as well, the house of Cornelius, the case in point, the example in that particular chapter. So we have an historical reference here, but not only that, there's a directional reference. And what I mean by that is this binding and loosing. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You can compare that to other Scriptures, such as 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1 to 13, such as 2 Corinthians 2, the verse 1 to 11. But where we are here is, and they are tied in with the Lord's words in John 20 and verse 23, where we are here is in the area of discipline within the church of Jesus Christ. Some people think, and they read these words, binding and loosing and all of that, they read them as, well, Peter had the authority to admit people into heaven. That's why we've got this popular image of Peter at the pearly gates and deciding who's getting in and uh, who's going to stay out, as if he's the one who has the authority to admit people into heaven or not, to keep them out of heaven if he so desires or feels it's a legitimate thing to do. And this is this basis here for the popular imagery that we're mentioning here bringing them in or turning them away. And some people also think that what it indicates is, well, Peter was the first pope. And so the successors of Peter, what's their symbolism? They've got keys. Keys. The papal insignia of the Roman Catholic Church is made up of two prominent keys crossed together 
and they're thinking, this is where it's stemming from. Tell me this, do ministers, servants of Jesus Christ, have the power to forgive sins? Jesus says, no, no one has power to forgive sins, but God only. Mark 2 and verse 10. So those keys don't refer then to that. They simply mean that as Christ's ambassadors in the world, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have authority, and this is as far as our authority goes, we have authority to declare the way of righteousness, to declare God's way of peace, that is, repentance from sin and faith in Christ and in His atoning work, and by that it is the gospel that binds or loose. It's the effects of the gospel that does one of these two things. And didn't Paul say, to one it's a savor of life unto life, and to other it's a savor of death unto death. The final thought, confession, construction, commission, crucifixion. And in verse 20 to 23, we have the teaching here about our Lord's crucifixion. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell the man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. And of course, Peter takes exception to that, and it won't be, and it can't be like that. But of course, it has to be like that, because our Lord, what is He doing here? Well, His whole death and crucifixion and resurrection lie at the core of His person at the core of His ministry, at the core of His purpose in being on the earth. And all of the lines of types and the pictures and the prophecies of the Old Testament, they converge on Him, and they're fulfilled right to the brim by Him when He suffered and died on that cross. And so in verse 21, He makes it abundantly plain. I will go to that cross, on that cross I will die, but that is not the end. I will rise again. What a claim that was. Only the Messiah, only God could make that kind of a claim. And it means that His death and His resurrection should be the central point, should lie at the core of all of our preaching. And of course, Paul emphasizes that in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 2, because here's a theme, and the devil, he hates it the most. What is it? Look at Matthew 16, 22 and 23 again. Then Peter took him began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thy savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Here is what the devil detests. Victory, Calvary, because he knew if the Savior gets there, I'm defeated as he was, Hebrews 2 in the verse 14. So, at the core, the death and resurrection of Christ, and the final thought here, by the cross. You and I can only be a follower of the Christ of the cross by walking in the way of the cross. 
And verse 24 and verse 25 of Matthew 16, that's what it's about. Then said Jesus, verse 24, unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. How could a man or woman become a martyr for Jesus Christ? How could they yield up their life and do it with submission, even with gratitude? It makes us scratch our heads and wonder, how were they carried through? Because they believe, verse 25, whosoever will save his life shall lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. They really believe that. And our Lord is saying to Peter here, it is the cross for me. Verse 23. But then he switches it around and he says, and Peter, it's the cross for you too. It is the way the master went, should not his servant tread it still. And so in Hebrews 13, verse 12 and 13, we are told, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. Let us go forth therefore unto him without the camp, bearing his reproach as He was crucified, let us also, in our daily walk, know what it is to carry a cross. Must Jesus bear the cross alone, and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone, and there's a cross for me. And so we have these main themes in this passage of commendation. We have confession, we have construction, commission, and crucifixion. And over it all, blessed art thou, Simon Berjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to thee. May we talk like Peter in that instance. And may the Lord bless our language our testimony, and our witness. Let's bow in prayer.